0: Some of you may realize as you look around at our culture that the Ten Commandments um, are falling out of favor in our day and in our country. Um, They're being peeled off of classroom court boards. They're being peeled off of courtroom walls. uh, They're being left untaught in living rooms in our homes. And many people have stood up and said, this is a sad day and a strange day to be an American. What I would say more than that is it's a strange day to be a Christian. I want to illustrate what I mean. Before you turn to Exodus 20, which I'm going to ask you to do in a moment, if you've already turned there, just close your Bibles back up, um, because we're going to have a little activity. It's been Vacation Bible School, and so some of you have gotten used to having Bible activities. We're going to have a Bible activity this morning. I'm going to give you about 60 seconds to take your bulletin or a scrap sheet of paper, and I want to ask you to take out a pen. There should be maybe pencils in front of you. And see if you can write out, in order, the Ten Commandments. So, don't look in Exodus 20, but just see if you can take 60 seconds and write out in order the Ten Commandments. Okay, you can put your pencils down and uh, look to the front. How did you do? Some of you, I trust, got all of them. Many of you, I would guess, found yourself scratching your heads. And some of you found yourself tempted to copy off of your neighbor and thus break the Eighth Commandment. So at least you have one of them now. My point is not to shame you, but to show you something about yourself. Some of you just realized that you don't know the Ten Commandments. Maybe you have a vague idea of what they are, but you don't really know them. And you're not alone. That's why I say it's a strange time to be a Christian, because a hundred years ago in this country, children learned these Commandments by heart, in order, before they ever went to school. And most of the time, they were taught by parents who knew them by heart and in order and who took them seriously. But today, many of us, uh, even Christians who are fairly mature in some ways, would be shame-faced if an unbeliever came up to us at the office tomorrow morning and said, hey, I've been thinking about the Ten Commandments, can you tell me what they are? Some of us wouldn't know what to say. Some of us would be quite embarrassed. I just have to ask, based on what's in front of you, if you'd be one of those people. Perhaps it's time for Christians to learn the Ten Commandments ourselves before we go campaigning to get them taught in the public schools. Perhaps it's time that we restore them to our family rooms before we get so hot and bothered about restoring them to our courtrooms. I think it's high time that God's people go back and start really learning the Bible again and take a closer look, for instance, at God's perfect ten. Most of us are vaguely familiar with them, but if we took the time to think through the Ten Commandments seriously, which we're going to do over the next three months, some of us might just be astonished at what we find. I believe some of us would find at least one of these commandments that we've never thought through at all. Most of us, I think, would find another commandment that we've misunderstood all of our lives. You can go home and see if you can figure out which one it is. And all of us would find that in each of these Ten Commandments, there's a lot more to obedience and godliness than we sometimes realize. So my point is, I think there are bottles full of untapped blessings waiting to be poured out of Exodus chapter 20. Today we're going to look at it as an overview. So I'd like to invite you now to turn there. And we're going to read verses 1 through 17 together. Exodus 20, 1 through 17 Recall that the people have just been rescued from Egypt, from slavery there. Verse 1 says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor." Over the next two and a half months, we're going to look at each one of these Ten Commandments individually. But today, my goal is simply to give you an overview, to get you ready for these next ten messages. And what I want to do is think through with you how it is that New Testament Christians should think about God's Old Testament law, which includes but is not limited to these Ten Commandments. I want to answer the question, are the Ten Commandments relevant for today? And if they are... How so? So we're going to divide the sermon this morning into two main headings, just two main points. Don't get excited because there will be many subpoints under those main points, but there are just two main points. The first is going to be the perpetuity of God's law. In other words, the lasting value of God's law, the perpetuity of God's law, and then secondly, the purpose of God's law. Is the law valid for today? And if so, what do we do with it? So first, the perpetuity of God's law. The question is, is there any lasting value in these Old Testament laws of God? Should we still be obeying them today? Those are questions that some of you have asked yourselves as you've read through books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Should we we obey these things? Are, Are these valuable for us? Perhaps some of you have asked the same kind of question this morning as we've opened up the Ten Commandments. You've already been thinking in your head. Is this something that's still for us? Or was this just for the people in the Old Testament? And you may have said to yourself, if you know your New Testament, doesn't the New Testament say we're not under law but grace? Romans 6.15. So where does that lead the Ten Commandments if we're not under law? And this is God's law. Where does that lead books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Is there any abiding relevance to the Old Testament law? Particularly for us these next weeks, the Ten Commandments. Well, clearly I believe there is, or I wouldn't be doing a whole three-month series on the Ten Commandments. But I'd like to take this, the first half of this message this morning and try to answer some of the questions that may come into your mind when you read the Old Testament or when you think about the commandments of God, the law of God. And I thought of three questions that I think would be the biggest ones that most of you would ask and the ones that are most important to ask, the ones we must ask. First question is this, didn't Jesus come to fulfill the law so that we don't have to? Didn't Jesus come to fulfill the law so that we don't have to? That's a very important question. And the answer, in a very real sense, is yes, He did. Jesus did come to fulfill the law so that we don't have to. Because none of us has fulfilled the law completely. None of us could fulfill the law completely. None of us could obey God completely. So Paul said in Romans 3 that you just heard a moment ago, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in my sight. No one can earn salvation by the works of the law. So we needed Christ to come as he did and to obey God perfectly as he did so that he wouldn't have sins of his own to pay for and it would make him morally capable of dying on the cross and paying for ours. So in a very real sense Christ did come fulfilling the law so that we don't have to fulfill the law to go to heaven. But the question is does that mean that we don't need to attempt to obey the law? Because Christ has done it for us, we don't even need to try. Is that is that what that means? No. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17-19. to 19. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus came to fulfill the law, to do all the things that we were supposed to do that we couldn't do, so that we might be forgiven and live. But in doing that, He demonstrated to us, didn't He, just how true and how valuable the commandments of God are. Jesus came, Galatians says, and put Himself under the law to fulfill the law on our behalf, but also to demonstrate to us that the law is valuable, that it is God's good pattern for our growth in the Christian life. And so he says, in effect, in Matthew chapter 5, as long as heaven and earth shall last, verse 18, God's people, as imperfect as our attempts will be, should be marked by desire to keep and teach God's commandments. Whether we find them in the Old or the New, we should be desired by mark, marked by desire to keep and to teach God's Word. So that's the first question. Did Jesus come to fulfill the law so that we don't have to? Yes. But He also set a pattern for living when He did so. Second question. Doesn't the New Testament Testament repeatedly teach us that we're not under law, but under grace? Again, the answer is yes. The New Testament does teach us again and again we're not under law, but under grace. Romans 6.14 says those very words. You are not under law, but under grace. Galatians 5.18 says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Galatians 2.19, Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. That's the inspired word of God. We cannot dismiss those verses. So some people say, well, there you have it. It's pretty clear then, isn't it? That the law, including the Ten Commandments, has nothing to do with us. We're dead to the law. We're not under the law. We're, We're under grace. And that would be the conclusion that we had to come to if we didn't also have passages like the one we just read in Matthew 5, where Jesus says whoever keeps and teaches the law and the prophets will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Or Romans 7.12, where Paul says, the same Paul who says we're not under law but grace, Romans 7.12, he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So it seems like we have one set of verses that dismisses the law and another set of verses that upholds the law. So how do we square up these two sets of verses that seem to contradict one another? One that says we're not under law. The other that says the law is good and we should keep it and teach it. How do we square that up? Well, let me give you a couple of answers. First, when you read the New Testament and you study the history of how people have understood the New Testament as it it unfolded, you find that most Bible scholars see a difference between the Old Testament moral laws, which we still uphold, for instance, the Ten Commandments, and the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws, which were part and parcel of the Old Testament national government and sacrificial system of Israel. So they distinguished between the moral laws and the civil and ceremonial laws. Civil laws being the laws of the land in Israel. What to do, how to punish someone who does X, or what to do with someone who commits this crime. And ceremonial laws being all the sacrifices that they had to make that were pointing forward to Christ. We don't have time to do so now, but you can read later today Hebrews chapter 9. And you can discover in Hebrews chapter 9 that God has declared the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament as obsolete. All the things about circumcision and feasts and sacrifices, Hebrews 9 very clearly says those things don't apply anymore because Christ has come and he's fulfilled those things. God's people are no longer a national people, they're a spiritual people, therefore they don't need a civil law. And God's people did all these sacrifices to point forward to Christ, Christ has come, therefore we don't need the sacrifices to point forward anymore because Christ has come. So Hebrews 9, and you can find other places in the New Testament as well, make it clear that the civil and ceremonial laws are not any longer binding on us. We still learn from them, they still point us to Christ, but they're not binding But if you go to the New Testament, you will search in vain to find any of the New Testament authors saying that the moral laws of the Old Testament are no longer binding for us. You won't find them saying you don't have to obey the Ten Commandments anymore. You can't find them. So there are laws to which the New Testament believer is dead, Galatians 2.19. Laws, again, about circumcision, feasts and sacrifices and so on. But there are other laws, according to Jesus, that we should be about keeping and teaching as long as the earth shall last. Matthew 5, 18 and 19. Namely, the moral standards that we find summarized, though not exhaustively, but summarized in the Ten Commandments. Secondly, to this question of are we under not under law but under grace, notice Romans 10, 4. You can turn there if you like or just... Listen as I read it. But Paul says there that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Listen carefully. Christ is the end of the law. But he doesn't put a period there. We might be tempted to put a period there. Christ is the end of the law. We don't have the law anymore. But he says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Paul is saying this, if you ever had any hopes, any thoughts in your mind of earning your way into good favor with God by keeping the law, forget about it. Number one, you can't do it, but number two, the death and resurrection of Christ have come and proved that you don't need to do it. So the death and resurrection of Christ pulled the rug out from under the Pharisees who thought that they were right with God because they'd done everything according to the law. They hadn't done everything according to the law. That's why there needed to be a Savior. So Paul is saying in Romans 10.4, don't think that you need to use the law to get right with God. That's not what the law is for. Christ has put an end to that kind of pharisaical thinking. Righteousness, a right relationship with God, comes not to those who perfectly obey the law, but to everyone who believes romans 10 4 and we saw it already this morning in romans chapter 3 as well i believe this is primarily what paul means when you find him in galatians and other places telling us again and again we're not under law we're under grace he's saying to us the law is not the way to get right with god grace is the law is not your savior christ is You can never fulfill the law. Christ can fulfill the law. Christ did fulfill the law. Christ died in your place. He is your Savior. Grace is your hope, not law. So in that sense, as believers, we are not under the law. Even though, as believers, imperfectly we want to abide by its standards and walk by its commands. Now, a third question that may arise in your mind. You may say to yourself, but I thought Christians live by only one law, the law of love. Do Christians really live by one law, the law of love? Again, the statement is partially true. Paul says in Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 22 when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So people again say, well, it's clear, isn't it? The law of the New Testament is the law of love. Therefore, we don't need the law of the Old Testament any longer because we have this one overarching law. And we do have one overarching law, but let me point out a couple of things about that overarching law of love. First... Notice that when Paul and Jesus summarized this law of love, that the first commandment is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself, both of them quote from the Old Testament law to teach us that. Love your neighbor as yourself wasn't made up in the New Testament. It comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength wasn't made up in the New Testament either. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. So when Jesus and when Paul wanted to teach us this one main overarching principle, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, where did they go to get that? To the law, the Old Testament law. Not what you would expect them to do if they were getting rid of the Old Testament law. But secondly, notice that when Jesus and Paul describe this new overarching law of love, They don't give it as a replacement of Old Testament law, but they frame it as a summary of Old Testament law, don't they? Paul says the law can be summed up by this statement. And Jesus says the law and the prophets hang on these two statements. In other words, they're both saying all of those Old Testament laws are there and you can sum them up like this. He's not saying you replace them with this. He's saying you sum them up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But then the question is, if that's true, if those are the overarching laws, where do we go to find out all that that means? Well, we go in many cases to the New Testament to find out what it means. But we also can go to the Old Testament to find out what it means. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? You look through the rest of the Scriptures to find that fleshed out. And one of the places you find out that it's fleshed out in great detail is in the Ten Commandments. Look at them again. Isn't it true that the first four commandments are clearly teaching us how to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength? And isn't it true that the last six commandments are clearly teaching us how to love our neighbor? So Jesus gives these two main commandments that sum up every other commandment, but when you go to the Ten Commandments, you find them fleshed out. Jesus is not arguing against the Ten Commandments. He's simply summarizing them. So what are we saying? We're saying that though Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf, and though the law cannot save us, and though there are certain parts of the law, the civil and ceremonial parts, that are no longer binding on the believer, and though the New Testament clearly teaches this one overarching law of love, there's no compelling reason to think that the moral laws of God, the Ten Commandments in particular, are thrown out. There's no reason to think that. They point us toward the standard. They show us what Christ fulfilled. They show us how to walk as Christians. They teach us what it means to love. And there's ample reason, again, as we've seen in the New Testament, to believe that Jesus intended that we continue to obey these commandments. To take them seriously and reverently, just as God's people always did. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he says, Whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I understand that. There's a part of you that says, I don't want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't want to be prideful. But just honestly, do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Do you want to do what pleases God? Jesus says, if you do, keep and teach the commandments, the law and the prophets. So that's the perpetuity of God's law. In my judgment, looking at the New and the Old Testament, it seems that this standard that we're going to study for the next 11 weeks after today, is still God's standard for His people. But now let's think about the purpose of God's law. The purpose of God's law. If the Old Testament is still relevant today, then what do we do with it? The obvious answer is we keep it and we teach it, right? Jesus already said that. So we know that. And I hope that's understood. If this is God's standard, then it's understood that we obey it. But I want us to dig a little bit deeper this morning and think about all the purposes that God has for giving us His laws. Why did God give us these things? Yes, to obey, but why else? Is there anything else here that will help us? And what I want to do this morning is give you four metaphors, four uses of God's law that I think we can see played out each week as we look at each one of the Ten Commandments, four ways that God intends we use His law. And I'll give them each to you in a word picture, a metaphor. OK, So number one: God's law is a pathway. God's law is a pathway. God's law is the pathway for joyful and righteous Christian living. And the Ten Commandments, as a summary statement of God's law, are like the center line in the road that keeps us from veering too far to the left or to the right. The Ten Commandments aren't the only commandments, they're not the only standards God's given us. But they're like the center line, they're like the baseline that keeps us from veering too far to the right or the left. And they point us to so many other places where we can understand God's will even in more depth. So the law of God is like a pathway. Listen to Psalm 119, verses 9 and 10. The psalmist asks, How can a man keep his, way, his pathway pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. You see, he's describing the commandments as a pathway. They're a way that He's to walk on and He doesn't want to wander from them. They're the center line in the road. And then listen to Psalm 119.35. Same song. Make me walk in the path of Your commandments for I delight in it. The commandments of God are a pathway. A pathway of joyful, righteous Christian living. Now, I want to pause here and make sure that you hear me correctly. The commandments of God are a pathway, not a doorway into the Christian life. We enter the Christian life not by works, but by faith in Christ who has done all the good works and died in our place. But once we have entered the doorway, there is a pathway that's lined out for us to walk. And Jesus describes that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Who's the narrow gate? Jesus. And then once you're in the narrow gate, you're supposed to walk on the narrow road versus the broad road. Once you enter the doorway namely Christ, there is a pathway that you walk with Him until you get to heaven. And we find that pathway partially summarized again in Exodus 20. So turn to Exodus 20 again if you didn't keep your finger there. And I want to make this even more clear. Exodus 20, verse 2, is God's preamble to the Ten Commandments. The the commandments begin in verse 3, but in verse 2 is the preamble. Because of this, you shall do this. So listen how the preamble to the Ten Commandments leads into the commandments themselves. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall do this and this. Notice, God did not give His people the you shall until after He had saved them. You see that? I am the Lord your God who brought you, past tense, out of the land of Egypt Now, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall do these other things. He didn't give them a list of rules and say, if you do these things, then I'll bring you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. No, he rescued them first and then he gave them his laws. And that's a reminder to us that this is the way God works with us. These commandments and the rest of God's standards that we find throughout the Old and New Testaments are not a prerequisite to becoming God's people. We've become God's people because of God's initiative. Sending His Son to die and to be risen on the third day so that we might walk in newness of life. So that He might rescue us out of the land of slavery. Slavery to sin. But once we've been rescued, once we've gone through the door, once we've been adopted into God's family, there is a set of house rules. And this is part of God's house rules. So remember, be cautious to remember, that though the Ten Commandments are a pathway to the Christian life, to show us how to live, they're not the doorway in. You cannot become a Christian by obedience to the commandments. You become a Christian by faith in Christ. Once you become one, there is a narrow road that God wants you to walk. And let me point out one other thing from Psalm 119.35, which I read a moment ago. The psalmist says the commandments of God are his delight. The commandments of God are a delight. This is not a lifestyle of deprivation and sullenness that God is calling us to. It's a lifestyle of joy and contentment and spiritual health. Obeying God's commands is in our best interest. That's why God gives them to us. the commandments of God are an expression of God's love toward us. You can find that in Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33 talks about how God gave a law through Moses, and then it says God loved His people and gave them a law. He loved them and gave them a law. So God's commandments are an expression of His love towards us, and our obedience is an expression of our love towards Him. That's why the Apostle John said this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. We need to hear that well this morning because we open to a passage like this or we read through books like Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy and we think it's a burden. But John says the commandments of God aren't burdensome. They're meant for our good. So the question this morning is, do you want to keep your way pure? Psalm 119.9. Do you want to walk in a pathway of delight? Psalm 119.35. If so, in both cases, the psalmist says, then keep your way according to God's words. Keep His commandments. A good place to start would be to memorize them again, thinking through these summary ten. So that's the first image that I want you to think of. God's law is a pathway. And it's a joyful pathway. The second image is this. God's law is a guardrail. A guardrail. Listen to Psalm 19, 7-11. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. In keeping them, there is great reward. I want to particularly call your attention to that phrase in verse 11. By them your servant is warned. It's true that the law of God is a joyful pathway for those who follow it. And we saw that again in this passage we just read, Psalm 19. But God's law is also a stern warning to those who are tempted to stray from it. The law is like a guardrail that keeps careless drivers from going over a cliff. And sometimes even God's own people need to be bounced back on the road again by God's threatenings and by God's law. Some of you have experienced that in your life. They're a guardrail. And even more than for the believer, the Ten Commandments and the laws of God are a guardrail for those who haven't yet become God's children on the basis of faith in Christ. Ten Commandments are helpful even for unbelievers. They cannot save an unbeliever. They cannot change his heart. The law was never intended to change a heart. The Holy Spirit does that. But the law can keep someone from falling as far into sin as he might without such restraints. That's why America's founding fathers chose the Ten Commandments as a basis upon which to frame the laws of our country. Not because they were all Christians, because they weren't. Not because they thought the law could change people's hearts, because it can't. Not because they thought they could legislate morality. But they chose the Ten Commandments as a basis for our founding documents because they knew that good laws restrain evil from going as far as it might without them. And they couldn't find any more comprehensive and noble summary of standards than the ones that we are considering this morning. Now, my point is not to say that federal government needs to start enforcing the Ten Commandments because civil government is not the chief concern of the New Testament era. You can flesh that out later, what the government should do with things like this. But what I'm saying is simply this. If they are taught the Ten Commandments, unbelievers will be kept from falling further and further into sin. They will. Your quoting of the Seventh Commandment to your co-worker may just keep her from walking out on her husband. And it may later as we're going to see, show her that she needs a Savior. God's law serves as a guardrail. It's a pathway, a joyful pathway for those who have found freedom in Christ. For those who haven't found freedom in Christ, it's a solid guardrail that keeps many a person from going off the cliff into further and further degradation. So God's law is a guardrail. Number three, God's law is a telescope. A telescope. You use a telescope to magnify things that are far away so that you might see them much more clearly. See them up close, as it were. And in one sense, God's Word is like a telescope then. If we want to see clearly the bigness and brightness of God and His character, then we must look at Him through the lens of His Word. Now, we can see God in the things that He's made. Paul says that. Psalm 19 says that as well. But we see God Most clearly, we see Him up close in His Word. And so the Word is like a telescope that helps us see God. And every portion of God's Word is intended to help us see God, to see the character of God. That's why Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, correction, training, and righteousness. All Scripture is useful to us to learn about God, to see Him up close. So though we primarily think of the Ten Commandments as a a list of instructions for how to live, which they are, we also need to recognize that these instructions teach us a great deal about the God who gave them. God gives laws that reflect Himself. For instance, if we look at God through the lens of the first commandment, we see that God is a God who is exclusive. If we look through the lens of the third commandment, we see that God is a God who is holy. If we look at God through the lens of the ninth commandment, we see that God is truthful and he requires us to be. If we look at God through the lens of the tenth commandment, we see that God is enough. We don't have to covet our neighbor's wife and donkey and every other thing because we have God. You can learn about God by looking at his laws. So each of the ten commandments and every other commandment that's given in the Bible has been given clearly for our obedience, yes, but also for our observation. When you open the Ten Commandments, you walk into a spiritual observatory where you can see God through lenses and see Him up close in a way that you would not see Him otherwise. So God's law is a telescope. And lastly, God's law is a mirror. A mirror. Alistair Begg, who's a pastor up in Cleveland, has said it like this, and he said it beautifully The Ten Commandments are not a ladder of which we climb to acceptance with God. They are a mirror in which we see our sin. They're not a ladder up which we climb to acceptance with God. They are a mirror in which we see our sin. Now, a mirror, ladies, shows you the mascara that's smeared all over your eyelids, right? And a mirror, men, shows you the spot that you missed when you shaved this morning. Or it shows you the gray hairs on your head. It shows you all sorts of things that are wrong so that you might correct what's wrong. That's what a mirror is for, isn't it? And so Alistair Begg says very rightly, the law of God is a mirror in which we see our sin, in which we see what's wrong with us. That's exactly right. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When you look at the law, you start to realize you're sinful. He says it again in Romans 7, verse 7. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Law is a mirror that shows us our sin. Now we've come to the most important purpose of God's law. That's why I saved it for last. God's law is a mirror. It shows us that something is wrong with us, it shows us that we are sinners. And when we initially come to it, maybe as children as we learn it, or as unbelievers who are confronted with it for the first time, it shows us the filth of our sin that's smeared all over our faces. But even once we become believers and we return to it again and again and again and begin to hold ourselves accountable to its standard, we realize just how incapable we are of meeting God's standards. We realize, as it were, that there are still the crumbs of forbidden fruit on our chin. We may not be as dirty as we were before, but we still see our sin when we come to the law of God as believers. Even the most mature Christian will never in this life obey even the Ten Commandments perfectly, much less all the other instructions of Scripture. So Paul says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But he also says in that same verse, Romans 3.20, that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. In other words, the law shows us our sin, but the law cannot save us from our sin. That stinks, doesn't it? It would be great if we could come to the law, see our sin, and stay right here in Exodus 20 and get it all fixed. But the law shows us our sin without saving us from our sin. Again, Alistair Begg is helpful. He says the law is a mirror in which we see our sin, but you cannot wash your face in the mirror. Or to put it another way, the law of God is a mirror, not a sink. The law of God shows us the sin stains on our faces, but it cannot do anything to wash them away. Now we're beginning to see why I said this is the most important use of God's law. That the greatest purpose of God's law is its mirror-like quality because in showing us our sin and not providing a solution for our sin, the law forces us to look elsewhere. The law forces us to look away from the law and find a Savior. The law forces us to look for a fountain in which we may wash our faces, in which we may wash our sins away. And let me just say to you, that's why it's so important that we take God's law seriously. Not because it can save you, but because God's law, if you hold yourself accountable to it, will constantly remind you of your need for a Savior. And that's what all of us, whether we're believers or unbelievers, need most. We need to be pointed again and again and again to the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we need. That's what the law does. Some of us need to be pointed to in this morning. You don't need some of you to hear ten more sermons on each of the ten commandments. Because in simply reading through them this morning, you already realize that there's forbidden fruit juice dribbling down your chin. You know that you're in trouble just by reading what's been said here. You know already, some of you, that you're breaking God's law and breaking it consistently and breaking it willfully, breaking it, some of you, grievously. Therefore, you need to be reminded that God has opened up a fountain in which sinners may plunge and be washed of all their guilty stains. That's what the law is here for this morning. To remind you that you're a sinner and to remind you that God sent his own son to die in the place of people who've broken his law. So that we might be forgiven, washed clean in the blood of Christ. And I want to urge some of you this morning to stop pretending that everything's okay but look in the mirror. I want to urge some others of you this morning who've been looking in the mirror to stop trying to wash your face in the mirror. And I want to urge some of you this morning to stop going down the treacherous pathway on which you've been traveling and leave that pathway and come to Christ. This is what the law does for us. Shows us our need for the Savior. Would you see your need for the Savior and put your trust in the Savior before you leave today? If you have not done that. And if you have, and you've been shown your sin again, would you go back and wash again in the fountain that God has opened for sin before you leave today? This is the purpose of God's law. Now let me ask one final question. And then we're through. And it's a relevant question because some of you have done the very things that I'm about to raise in this question. The question is this, what are the long-term consequences of ignoring God's law? Or of soft-peddling it? Or of setting it aside as obsolete? What are the long-term consequences of that? Well, if we ignore the law of God, then pretty soon we realize that we don't have a mirror in our hand in which to see our sin. And if we have no mirror in our hand in which to see our sin, then pretty soon we stop going back to that fountain where we may wash all our sins away. And if we stop going back regularly to that fountain, what are we left with? No hope, no future, no forgiveness, no Savior. So if for no other reason than that reason alone, Let's, over the next 11 weeks, take these Ten Commandments seriously. This law which Paul calls holy and righteous and good. Let's strive to understand them. Let's strive to obey them. And in failing, as we inevitably will, let's flee again and again to the fountain that God has opened for sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us allow allow Christ to wash us with his blood these next 11 weeks. And as we do, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God.